Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes graphic discussions of torture that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In November 1605, King James sat on his tapestried throne in the center of the House of Lords. It was the first time Parliament had convened in over a year, as fear of the Black Plague hung in the background. However, there was a more pressing threat lurking beneath their feet, a fuse burning toward 36 barrels of gunpowder. The explosion ripped through the House of Lords like a shockwave. King James' skeleton shattered almost instantly. Even the seven-foot walls of concrete weren't a match for the blast. The billow of smoke shot high into the sky. Innocent bystanders were torn to pieces by flying glass and crushed under the rubble of nearby buildings. Hundreds of royals, lords, servants, dead in an instant. It was a horror unlike anything the early modern world had ever experienced before. At least, this is what would have happened had everything gone according to plan. Instead, what came to be known as the Gunpowder Plot, a plan to take down the monarchy and destroy the British House of Lords, was foiled in its final hours. All because of a single handwritten letter from an anonymous source. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But... We are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our second episode of four on failed conspiracies. A series where we blow open the oh-shoots and what-ifs of history's biggest blunders. Today, we're covering the Gunpowder Plot of 1605. Some say it was one of the first documented cases of domestic terrorism in history. The plot is best known for one of its henchmen, Guy Fox. His enigmatic persona inspired the title character of the graphic novel V for Vendetta and the hacktivist collective Anonymous. Many recognize the mask, but few know the story of the man. This episode, we'll learn how the plot's mastermind, Robert Catesby, assembled a team of conspirators to take down King James and investigate what inevitably led to his team's tragic end. And since our whole episode is one big conspiracy, we'll end on something a little different. We'll dive into an alternate world where Guy Fawkes and Robert Catesby succeeded. Had the gunpowder gone off, what would the world look like today? We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. 
This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. If you're interested in crazy stories from the wild world of organized crime, scams, gangs, cartels, mafias, drug dealers, and everything fun like that, have we got a podcast for you. The Underworld Podcast is hosted by two conflict journalists, Danny Gold and Sean Williams, who have reported on all sorts of dangerous people in dangerous places. Every week, they bring you a new episode on international organized crime from a new corner of the globe. You can find the Underworld podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. The reign of Queen Elizabeth I was not very pleasant for the Catholics. By 1585, they paid steep fines if they refused to attend the Protestant Church of England. Repeat offenders risked heavier fines and seizure of goods. Some priests practiced Catholicism in secret, but they lived in constant fear. Being caught was punishable by death. As Father William Weston wrote, Catholics now saw their own country, the country of their birth, turned into a ruthless and unloving land. Nowhere was this more apparent than in York, a city in northeast England. Founded by the Romans, it became one of the epicenters of the Catholic resistance and a horrifying example of the persecution. It wasn't uncommon for priests to be put to death in a gruesome public spectacle as punishment for saying mass. The men would be hung and quartered, their severed body parts dragged through the streets and taken home as souvenirs by bloodthirsty spectators. One devout Catholic named Margaret Clitheroe had built a secret room in her home to provide shelter for priests. But in 1586, a boy found the chambers and told the authorities. 
Clitheroe refused to plead guilty or innocent, as she believed only God could judge her. Servants stripped and bound her before placing her back on a stone the size of a baseball. They stacked a door on top of her and crushed her with 800 pounds of rubble. It was a horrifying example of what it meant to defy the Protestant monarchy. Years later, a devout Catholic named Robert Catesby became increasingly thirsty for a new regime. Catesby was six feet tall, handsome, cunning, intelligent, and he had a special ability to engender others to his cause. But Catesby had made a mistake early on. In 1601, he conspired with the Earl of Essex in a plan to force the Queen to change certain heads of her government. Ultimately, their scheme failed. Catesby was imprisoned and left by today's standards $3.8 million in debt. Even worse, the Earl was beheaded and Catesby was driven underground. But despite this, he kept working in the shadows. Catesby knew there would be another time to strike against the monarchy, but he didn't want another half-hearted attempt. Next time, he was going to go big. He was ready to kill. Before Catesby got a chance to take down the queen, nature beat him to the punch. After 45 years of rule, Elizabeth I's health deteriorated. She slipped into depression, and she began experiencing periods of bad health. And in 1603, she passed away at 69 years old. For English Catholics, her last dying breath was their sigh of relief. They allowed themselves a sliver of hope. Perhaps, once a new monarch took the throne, an era of religious tolerance could begin. The coronation of the next monarch, King James I, occurred during a torrential rainstorm. Because there was still a lingering fear of the plague, the streets weren't as crowded as they normally would have been. Nevertheless, things were looking up. After all, the Anglo-Spanish War was winding down, and Catholic priests were once again permitted to practice their faith. The king even suspended fining those who didn't attend Protestant church. Plus, the king's mother, Mary, Queen of Scots, was considered a Catholic martyr after Queen Elizabeth had her imprisoned. Many felt they could trust King James because of his lineage. While he promised leniency in public, James' private thoughts were far more prejudiced. He once wrote to his Secretary of State, Robert Cecil, quote, I will never allow in my conscience that the blood of any man shall be shed for diversity of opinions in religion. But I should be sorry that Catholics should so multiply as they might be able to practice their old principles upon us. Over time, his true colors began to show. In February 1604, he pronounced his detestation of Catholics and exiled all Jesuits and priests out of the kingdom, just as Elizabeth had done. The Protestant ruling class was rotten to the core. Catesby knew something must be done. Unsatisfied with half-measures, Catesby was ready to burn the monarchy down, literally. Historian Antonia Fraser described his mentality as, quote, 
that of the crusader, who does not hesitate to employ the sword in the cause of values which he considers are spiritual. He was a man who wanted to go to work, destructive work. But to succeed where he had failed before, he needed the right men for the job, a squad with diverse skills and varied resources. First, Thomas Winter. He was Catesby's cousin, a man with cash and connections who was quick-witted and skilled in winning arguments. Second, John Wright. He was Catesby's close friend and one of the best swordsmen in England. Wright had fought in the Essex Rebellion alongside Catesby three years prior. In early 1604, Catesby invited them to his house in Lambeth in southern London. Carefully, Catesby then divulged his plan. He was going to blow up Parliament, and they were going to help. Winter was aghast. He knew the consequences would be disastrous, and not just for them. Catholics all over the state would be in grave danger if the plan failed. The king might crack down even further, taking revenge on the exact people they were trying to help. Perhaps anticipating Winter's reluctance, Catesby worked every ounce of his signature charm. He pleaded with his cousin, noting that the disease of religious intolerance required a sharp remedy, and a bomb would be the last resort. They would only use it after exhausting every peaceable and quiet path first. Eventually, Winter relented and Wright agreed as well. They were off to the races. Winter set off for Flanders, a region that today is part of northern Belgium, but then was under military rule by the Spaniards. His mission was to enlist the help of the Constable of Castile, since the Constable was working to negotiate peace between England and Spain at that time. If Winter could convince him to repeal the anti-Catholic restrictions as part of those negotiations, perhaps they'd get the freedom they yearned for. Unfortunately, the constable was more concerned with the war in Flanders than the Catholic cause in England. The visit amounted to empty promises. After a few other attempts at negotiation, this was the team's final effort at peaceable and quiet diplomacy. Which isn't to say Winter's trip was a total waste. Catesby had heard rumors of a dogged soldier who'd left England years prior, and this mercenary was currently in Flanders fighting for Spain. Apparently, he knew siege warfare like the back of his hand. This was Guy Fox. Fox grew up in Yorkshire, surrounded by the horrors of the Protestant monarchy. But rather than watch Mary Clitheroe's execution with despair, 16-year-old Fox felt something else. As Clitheroe refused to cooperate and bravely faced her own death, he felt admiration. That sense of courage stayed with him as he grew into an adult. So when Winter explained there was a plan brewing back in England to overthrow the king, Fox was happy to lend his services. They sailed back immediately. For Catesby's plan to succeed, he also needed an inside man. He reached out to John Wright's brother-in-law, Thomas Percy, since he used to deliver secret correspondence to King James back in Scotland. But now, Percy felt betrayed by the king and was anxious to seek revenge. 
However reckless he was in his personal life, Thomas Percy was ruthless when it came to business, exactly what Catesby needed. Not to mention, he had a few things nobody else did, like money, resources, and a reason to be at Parliament. On May 20th, 1604, Catesby called his team to the Duck and Drake, an inn at the Strand, one of London's trendy districts at the time. There, Catesby detailed a rough outline of the plot. In one year, the new Parliament would begin. The House of Lords wouldn't just be filled with the usual politicians and officers. It would be filled with the entire royal apparatus— The royal family, nobility, senior churchmen, knights, all packed like sardines into one tight space. They'd rent a small dwelling next to the House of Lords, and then they'd dig a mine underneath, leading directly to the cellar beneath the chambers. They'd stockpile gunpowder in the undercroft, and on the day of the new session, boom. The men placed their hands over a prayer book and swore that they wouldn't tell a soul about the plans. A recusant priest, Father John Jared, then gave them communion and mass. After that fateful meeting, the plot's fuse was lit, and there was nothing anyone could do to stop it. Coming up, a betrayal, a shootout, and a tragic finale. Imagine living with a secret so big that if anyone ever found out, it would change everything. Imagine carrying that secret with you every day, desperate to one day get it off your chest. Do you think you could take a secret like that to the grave? I'm Estefania Hageman, host of the new podcast series, Deathbed Confessions, the show where we dive deep into the most explosive things people have admitted to while drawing their last breath. From murder, fake identities, heists, illicit affairs, and even top government secrets. This season on Deathbed Confessions, we investigate cases like Frank Thorogood, the construction worker who claimed that the drowning of Rolling Stones founder Brian Jones was no accident. Margaret Gibson, a silent film actress who, while dying of a heart attack, confessed to one of the most famous unsolved crimes in Hollywood history. And ex-CIA officer Howard Hunt, who on his deathbed confessed to playing a role in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes weekly starting July 21st. Follow and listen to Deathbed Confessions for free on Spotify. Now back to the story. At the turn of the 17th century, Catholics in England lived in secrecy and fear. They were fined for not attending the Protestant church, imprisoned for going to Catholic mass, and slaughtered for helping Jesuit priests. But Robert Catesby and his conspirators had a plan to stop this persecution, and it was severe. They were going to kill everyone in the royal family with one swift explosion. Then they'd install a new Catholic government. By December 1604, the gang had begun digging a tunnel beneath the House of Lords from a nearby flat. It would take a heroic effort to finish by the time Parliament met in February. But a couple of lucky developments turned the tides in their favor. First, due to the bubonic plague, 
the session was postponed until the fall, buying them valuable time. Second, the cellar beneath the House of Lords, which was more like a storehouse, became available to rent for those with the right connections. Luckily, they had the perfect cover. The wealthy Thomas Percy would rent the space, and Guy Fawkes would play as his servant, keeping watch over Percy's belongings, meaning the men could haul the gunpowder into a safe space and stockpile it right underneath their target's feet. Still, renting the chamber was expensive, even for Percy. More purse strings needed to be pulled. Confident in his cause, Catesby brought more people into the fold. One such financier, Francis Tresham, gave Winter a small sum, but soon raised his own issue with the plan. The explosion would do more than just destroy the king. Tresham's own brother-in-law, Lord Monteagle, sat in that chamber too. For him to comply meant murdering a family member. Still, Tresham agreed to come on board, as long as they followed through with the entire scheme. The second phase of the plot was just as important. Catesby imagined that after the attack, the English government would cease to exist. That would be their time to strike and create a new monarch sympathetic to Catholics. Catesby had a plan for this, too. Fox would creep into the cellar beneath the House of Lords and on the 5th of November, light a match and flee across the Thames. Meanwhile, Sir Everard Digby, another co-conspirator, would be waiting with a hunting party in Dunchurch, northwest of London. Catesby would rendezvous with them at the Red Lion Inn. However, the party would be a cover. There'd be no hunting on the agenda. Catesby and Digby would then lead this small army to kidnap Princess Elizabeth, the king's teenage daughter, who was staying near Coventry. She'd be absent from Parliament that day. With the help of allies in the Midlands and Flanders, they'd declare Princess Elizabeth the new queen. Installed on the throne, with her family gone, Catholic guardians would educate her in the Roman faith. Eventually, a new era of religious tolerance would reign. It was a long-shot strategy, and incredibly, it might have all gone according to plan if it weren't for a single handwritten letter. On the night of October 26, 1605, just ten days before the new Parliament session, something strange happened to Lord Monteagle, Treshman's brother-in-law. His servant was walking through the dim London streets when a tall stranger accosted him. The footman was handed a message and told to give it to Lord Monteagle. The letter read, I have care of your preservation. Therefore, I would advise you, as you tender your life, to devise some excuse to shift your attendance at this parliament. For God and man hath concurred to punish the wickedness of this time. For though there be no appearance of any stir, yet I say they shall receive a terrible blow, this parliament, and yet they shall not see who hurts them. It went on to imply that since Monteagle was Catholic, he may actually benefit from what might happen. Therefore, he should burn the letter and make good use of it. Monteagle was stunned. 
The letter was anonymous, but the threat was worth investigating. So, Monteagle did make use of the letter, just not in the way the sender intended. He spread the word to his fellow lords. Monteagle's servant also alerted the conspirators, and the news eventually made its way to Catesby. Furious, he then shared the information with Winter. The two believed Tresham was behind the letter, so they confronted him. Tresham denied writing it, but still it made sense that he tried to warn his brother-in-law and spare his life. The identity of the letter's author remains a mystery to this day. There was, however, one suspect, a man that gained esteem after the discovery. Lord Monteagle himself. After the plot was uncovered, Monteagle received a hefty cash reward and land to boot. It was a far cry from being stuck in the Tower of London for his part in the Essex Rebellion years prior. Allegedly, Monteagle had heard whispers that a conspiracy was brewing. Since the letter was light on details, Monteagle could have simply written the vague threat himself, told the authorities about it, and saved the day without ever implicating his brother-in-law. Now that Monteagle had alerted authorities that something was about to happen, Winter begged Robert Catesby to give up the project. But they were so close, he wasn't going to stop now. Fox checked on the goods. Everything was still in place. But outside of Parliament walls, the warning letter gained credibility. On November 1st, Robert Cecil, the head of the state, even showed it to the king, and James wasn't one to let the warning slide. Rather than send the guards to search the grounds immediately, Cecil had a better idea. He wanted to catch them red-handed, so they waited. On November 4th, Catesby's team commenced with the plan, completely unaware that the king was onto them. Fox entered the underground chamber with nothing but something to light the fuse and a watch in his pocket. There, he'd wait until the next day. But he wasn't alone. Lord Suffolk, one of the leading members of the Privy Council, and a few others stepped into the undercroft. While making the rounds, Suffolk was astonished to find Fox, sitting alone amongst massive piles of brushwood. Somehow, Fox didn't panic. He covered by claiming he was just a servant, guarding his master, Thomas Percy's, belongings. Suffolk knew the name, which was enough. He left the vault and Fox breathed a sigh of relief. Except this encounter was the beginning of the end. Suffolk inevitably told the council about his run-in with Percy's servant, and Monteagle was taken aback. Because Percy had his own house in London, there was no reason for him to rent storage under the House of Lords. By this time, it was around midnight on the 5th of November. The king ordered an immediate search of the cellars. They found Fox in the undercroft still wide awake. They tore off the wood piles. To their astonishment, there were 36 barrels of gunpowder lying underneath. The men then arrested Fox, who adamantly maintained his cover. He was just a servant named John Johnson. 
Unaware that Fox was found, Catesby and the others fled London to begin the second stage of the plot. In Dunchurch, Digby and his so-called hunting party awaited the group. When he arrived, Catesby said they'd killed the king. Whether or not it was true, they just needed to carry on with the plan. Once Catholics across the realm heard of their heroic deed, they'd rise up and join them. Back in London, Fox remained steadfast. His interrogators were baffled. Most deviants were known to the state, but Fox was a complete mystery. When James asked him if he had regrets, he said only one, that he had not succeeded. The king was impressed with his unshakable faith, but he would not show him any mercy. On November 6th, Fox was sent to the Tower of London. King James instructed his men to use the gentler tortures to get Fox to cough up information. Fox was hung up by his wrists against the cold brick wall. The iron gauntlets were gradually tightened, and he was left dangling for several hours at a time. But even this device could not get him to fess up. That night, he explained to one of his captors that he resisted not just for his comrades, but also for his God. He took an oath of silence and prayed every day for his soul and the livelihood of Catholicism. On November 7th, the guards brought him to a style of torture that no man had ever withstood, the rack. Fox was fastened to an oak frame, his wrists and ankles tied to both ends. The guards pulled a lever, stretching him to the point of near dislocation. At last, Fox was broken, literally and figuratively. It was then that, as one lord wrote, he beginneth to speak English. Meanwhile, Catesby and his men made off for Wales, stopping at various Catholic safe houses, gathering supplies, and hoping to band more fellow insurgents together. But by the time they made it to Staffordshire, England, they numbered very few. As Digby wrote, not one came to take our part, though we had expected so many. Defeated, they set up camp for the night. In a cosmic coincidence, some damp gunpowder unexpectedly exploded, leaving some of the conspirators burned and at least one blinded. This was the final straw. Not only had their comrades abandoned them, but the cruel twist of irony was proof God had as well. Wright suggested they should end their own lives with the remaining powder, and by that point, even Catesby agreed. The cause was lost. But before they could fall on their swords, the sheriff of Worcestershire galloped in with 200 men. Winter was shot in his right arm and captured. Wright was slain. Catesby and Percy were killed by a single bullet that passed through them both. The rest were arrested and transported back to the Tower of London. The surviving conspirators, including Fox, Digby, and Winter, were tried for high treason on January 27, 1606. Over the next few days, after being found guilty, they were hanged to great fanfare across the nation. The king addressed Parliament with surprising grace and forgiveness. He noted that the foiled terrorist attack was the work of a few fanatics, rather than the entire papist community. 
but soon enough, laws against Catholics increased in severity. For the next hundred years and more, Catholics were denied the right to vote or hold office and paid debilitating fines. Though Catesby and Fox were devoted to keeping Catholicism alive in England, the gunpowder plot irreversibly injured their cause. Today, Fox is hardly thought of as a Catholic symbol. His visage far outshines his morality. In the dystopian graphic novel V for Vendetta, the anti-establishment hero dons a white mask with a conniving smile, long mustache, and pointy beard the near-identical face of Guy Fox. This haunting disguise cropped up again in 2008 when the hacktivist collective known only as Anonymous appeared with the same masks at a Scientology protest. With his persona everywhere, it's easy to lose sight of the original man, a devout terrorist driven to desperate measures. Ironically, Anonymous might not know the root of his story, that with all his fearlessness, Fox himself was brought down with a single letter, which also remains anonymous. Coming up, an alternative reality had the gunpowder plot succeeded. Now back to the story. In 1606, Thomas Winter, Guy Fox, and a handful of their co-conspirators were hanged for treason. The gunpowder plot was a far-fetched scheme enacted out of desperation. There were many chances for it to fail, and it did spectacularly. But now, let's step into an alternate world where that letter never reached King James, because things might have gone very differently. We're back in the Undercroft, November 5th, 1605. Guy Fawkes hears footsteps from the chamber above. He lights the fuse of a long twine and takes off through the mine from which he came. The flame torches through the rope just as Fawkes rides off on horseback across the Thames. He stops on a bridge and takes a look back to watch the fruit of his work. The spark closes in on the piles of powder, Fox readies for the carnage, and then nothing. It turns out that the delay of Parliament from February to November might have been a double-edged sword. It gave Fox and Catesby time to finish digging the tunnel, but it might have poured cold water on their plans in another way. In the real scenario, the gunpowder they'd planted was taken to the Tower of London along with Fox, but the king's men discovered it had decayed, meaning that it basically sat in the vault to rot. The ingredients had separated, rendering the powder useless. That said, it's possible that this separation happened in the days after Fox's capture. After all, he was an explosives expert, and back in late August, he noticed the decay and allegedly fixed it. Not only that, there was far more gunpowder than necessary in that stockpile. Modern tests revealed that Fox allowed for at least 50% of the gunpowder to remain untouched. If only half was ignited, Parliament would still be in major trouble. 
Therefore, it's likely that even if some was useless, a detonation was inevitable. It's worth considering alternate scenario number two. The bomb does go off. Estimates by the University of Wales at Aberystwyth suggest that the House of Lords, the House of Commons, and Westminster Hall would have crumbled. Everything within a 130-foot radius would be razed to the ground. Even Westminster Abbey, which faced the house across Old Palace Yard, would have been destroyed. The Henry VII Chapel was most vulnerable. Its intricate fan vault ceilings would have collapsed onto the tomb of Elizabeth I, bringing a poetic justice that even the most pacifist Catholic would appreciate. As for the men in the chamber, there would be no survivors. When factoring in servants and innocent bystanders, it's estimated that hundreds of people would have died in the attack, a full-on massacre. There were many notables in the House of Lords that day, which is where this scenario really becomes interesting. During the summers these days, couples head to the park to watch plays written by history's famous bard, William Shakespeare. But imagine if the powder had blown. When you go to the park, you see no stage, just empty grass. When you ask a man walking his dog about the William Shakespeare Festival, he looks puzzled. He says, William who? King James, for all his faults, was a great patron of theater. There was one company in particular that James proudly funded, the Kingsmen. Most people have never heard of them, but many have heard of their most famous playwright, William Shakespeare. If Catesby had successfully slaughtered the king just a few years into his reign, Shakespeare might have died destitute and unknown, meaning no Hamlet, no Romeo and Juliet, and definitely no Macbeth. Ironically enough, that play has direct references to the gunpowder plot. And there would be many other dramatic effects on history. By 1605, King James had undertaken a project that has shaped every English speaker since, the King James Bible. It wasn't the first English translation of the Bible, but it was the most influential. As Navy ships proliferated across the globe to India, Africa, and the Americas, this document held the foundation of the English language. It became the de facto reference, an early modern textbook of sorts, cementing English as the world's most ubiquitous language. But the King James Version wasn't published until 1611. If James had been vanquished on that fateful day, the project would have been delayed. A copy of the King Henry Bible might instead be in every hotel room. Or perhaps there would be no copy at all. Last but not least, the cousin of Robert Cecil, the head of state, also stood in the House of Lords that day. Cecil appointed this man to write letters for the king, thanks to his exemplary ability. This writer wasn't just talented with words. He was equally influential for his contribution to science. One of his most well-known works, Novum Organum, outlined a profound system of logical reasoning. His name might ring a bell, Francis Bacon. Bacon was instrumental in shaping modern empiricism. Instead of relying on blanket statements, Bacon proposed that every hypothesis should be tested. 
He's known as the godfather of the scientific method and paved the way for every technological and philosophical breakthrough since. The only problem, he didn't begin writing Novum Organum until 1620, 15 years after the gunpowder plot. If Catesby had been successful, Bacon would have died that day and never imparted his knowledge or his influence. Louis Pasteur may not have invented vaccines. Alexander Fleming may not have discovered penicillin. We may still cower in fear of the Black Death more than 400 years after the same plague delayed Parliament and rendered the gunpowder moot. Even this podcast uses Baconian principles of inductive reasoning. We test each theory and weigh the evidence. If Bacon was killed before he could share his research-based philosophy, our show Conspiracy Theories might not exist. Luckily for us, Fox was discovered before any of that could happen. But the explosion was just the start. Let's suppose that Catesby had been able to follow his plan all the way through to the end, safely escorting Princess Elizabeth to the royal palace and installing her on the throne. Despite handlers to oversee her education in Catholicism, it's impossible to know how the young Elizabeth would have reigned. It does seem a little rosy to think she would embrace the same faith that, in essence, caused the brutal murder of her entire family. All in all, English politics might have changed little, but a successful detonation might have had one unintended result with a much farther reach than Robert Catesby could have imagined. Picture this, the United States, modern day. You take a walk down the street and say hello to your neighbors as you pass. They look at you strangely, yet it's hard to tell quite why. You give your usual order at the coffee shop. Again, the barista stares at you, confused. With a perfect French accent, she says what translates into, I'm sorry, I don't speak English. The United States is now a French-speaking country. Because in 1606, just one year after the planned attack, an expedition set off for the Americas, in which Great Britain established Jamestown, the first major colony of North America. But if everyone in the British government, including the colony's namesake, King James, had been blown to pieces, it's unlikely that expedition would be on the priority list. This would have given Spain or France a head start in conquering the Americas. Had it not been for Lord Monteagle's letter, it's easy to see how the British Empire might not have continued its reign. The reality was that on November 5, 1604, after hearing the rebels were thwarted, England celebrated the news with bonfires and revelry. Soon after the executions, Parliament established November 5th as a national holiday to celebrate the lives that were saved. The 5th of November is still celebrated today as Guy Fawkes Day. Brits burn effigies and set off huge displays of fireworks, similar to how Americans honor the 4th of July. But it is odd that England would name the holiday after the man who planned to kill so many. Fox and Catesby were paradoxes, some of the earliest terrorists in the Western world, and also rebels with a sympathetic cause. They acted on the yearning for freedom after a life of discrimination and prejudice. 
It's worth pointing out that when we hear, remember, remember the 5th of November today, we don't see masks of King James bobbing through the street. We picture the man in the cellar sitting atop 36 barrels of gunpowder, the face of Guy Fox. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. For more information on the gunpowder plot, we found Faith and Treason, the story of the gunpowder plot by Antonia Frazier, helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Ben Caro, with writing assistance by Lori Gottlieb and Mackenzie Moore. Fact-checking by Adriana Romero and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. (laughs) 